This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 17th, 2022, and this is episode 277. I'm Scott Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, it's an emergency. It's an emergency on top of all the other emergencies that are going on. We have the Emergencies Act, the federal one, amid ongoing protests. We have a new economic plan in BC, which we'll probably have forgotten about by tomorrow. And we are restarting once again. We have another restart plan. This time it's serious. This time it's forever. Thank you to everyone who contributes to the show each month and or annually. You can join them at patreon.com slash politicoast. Let's start off with a quick recap in the Greatest BC Premier bracket. The Liberal competition came down and I'm honestly a little surprised at the results. Boss Johnson gets 21 votes. Gordon Campbell gets 12 I, I'm not a fan of Gordon Campbell. I wouldn't have voted for him. I probably would have protested him if I lived here at the time. But I think he left more of a legacy on this province than Johnson. I guess too many people just viewed it as a negative legacy. He's, he's too recent. That's the real problem, I think. Anyone in the last 20 years still stirs up a lot of feelings, both good and bad. Which I'm sure is going to impact the, uh, the next two we talk about too, but anything newer than the 90s is uh doesn't i i don't think we have the full perspective on that that really helps us take the long-term view on them then we'll do this competition again in 20 years when we're still going let's talk about the final well it'll be our 2000th episode exactly spectacular our final quarterfinal the greatest new democrat premier we have john horgan up against dave barrett John Horgan, the current premier, I shouldn't need to say too much about him since 2017. He led a confidence and supply agreement with the BC Greens until 2020, and then was the first NDP premier ever to win re-election. He governed through COVID, disasters, and the overdose epidemic, among many other things, and your opinion of those things is probably well entrenched. I found it interesting, there was a poll out today from Research Code that said 69% approve of the job he's doing and 46% would vote for the BC NDP today which is down only slightly minus 2 from 2020 which is probably within the margin of error so still pretty popular um the other one we're putting him up against Dave Barrett the 26th premier probably the most famous NDP premier in the province he was from 1972 to 75 he was the first NDP premier he unseated the WAC Bennett government after decades in power He introduced lots of things we know and love and or hate, like ICBC, the Agricultural Land Reserve, the Human Rights Code. Hansard exists because of him. Before that, they didn't write things down in the legislature other than what bills were passed. He banned corporal punishment, launched Pharmacare, and did many other things. In fact, so many things, they passed a bill every three days, 367 bills in that time. But he was defeated after three years in a snap election as the Socreds had reconsolidated under WAC Bennett's son, Bill. So go to at Pod on Twitter, vote for either John Horgan or Dave Barrett. I have my sympathies for the history 
here, but I think there's actually a decent case for either of them. I'm curious to see who wins this one. Let's go to our first segment, Justin Watch Him. Just Watch Him? He did it. Justin Trudeau declared, invoked the Emergencies Act, the first time this piece of legislation has ever been used since it was introduced to replace the War Measures Act, which is father most famously introduced to respond to the FLQ crisis. It's been a wild week. (laughs) That it has. I have family staying here. I have family staying here who's in from Ottawa, and they weren't in downtown Ottawa. They're following everything closely, and so they were pleased to see the police chief resign, lose his job. They're because nothing had been seemingly happening in response to the protests. And now seemingly lots is as blockades are being set up in the capital of this country and checkpoints as they start the process of clearing this convoy out. Handcuffs are finally going on people, which is long overdue. Yeah, a lot of handcuffs finally, and including some of the prominent organizers. Police are being flown in. I've read a report today that Vancouver police is sending some people, RCMP officers, Quebec police officers are going in. The borders have been reopened as far as I know. Like things are changing pretty quick. Even by the time you listen to this, things will probably be different. But this is the week stuff happened. Yeah, but you have to wonder why this had to be the week it happened and not, say, the first week of February when this was all new and not uh, going on to, what, week three or almost week four? I think it was 21 days to the day after it started that the Emergencies Act was declared. So, not quick. I Do we want to have – let's have the debate now. Is this the right move? Because here we have the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and just today the BC Civil Liberties Association condemning it as not meeting the test of an actual – of a justifiable emergency. Like, everything that's happening could be dealt with under existing laws if the police would do their jobs yeah that's where i come down on this too clearly something needed to be done on this because multiple weeks of just complete inaction as very obvious uh and blatant unlawfulness was happening in the capital was just a completely untenable situation and could not be allowed to continue Nevertheless, this is a very big hammer for what should be a mildly inconvenient nail at best. Yeah, I saw it compared as it's a, the first thing Trudeau finally reached for when he finally did something was the nuclear option. We're talking a couple thousand protesters in Ottawa. It's not that much. Yeah, the, the trucks present some challenges, but nothing that police couldn't handle with the right plan and resources existing resources and that's one of the things is the one of the provisions of the emergencies act is that the a national emergency has to be beyond the scope of a single province to deal with and it just seems far from clear to me that ontario was unable to handle this parts of the police seemed unwilling to handle this but just unable to didn't really seem to be actually the case there so it, it to me it's far from clear that this technically meets all the requirements of it and even if we grant that it does it seems far better to me to address the issue of 
police in action rather than going for this. Like the uh, in Canada, as politicians have said repeatedly throughout this, the, the politicians don't threat the police, but at some point, ultimately, the police are accountable to the government, the politicians, and the people who elect the politicians. And if the exact structure of that arrangement doesn't allow for the people with the democratic legitimacy to actually order in the police to deal with clear unlawful behavior where there isn't any doubt about that, it sure seems like that is the thing that should be fixed rather than doing weird runarounds with freezing financial assets and the like. I am really curious to see how the BC Committee to Reform the Police Act is going to go in light of this entire debacle as compared to how it was drifting along before it. But to the question at hand, there was a pretty clear case that COVID when it started was a justifiable time to use the Emergencies Act. Like It was a crisis that affected the entire country and could benefit from a coordinated response. Now, it largely worked out without doing it, but we could debate whether the federal government doing more could have prevented more deaths, possibly, and would it have been worthwhile. We didn't go down that path, so we don't need to get into that debate. This one, I think there are some interesting things the federal government is doing. You mentioned the financial assets there. And yeah, the Emergencies Act, it seems like does give the federal government the power to just direct banks and financial institutions to start freezing assets of people suspected of being involved. It gave them the ability to go after the crowdfunding places before they could bring legislation in. And that seems like a quick way for them to start cutting off funding. And funding fuels this quite literally. It buys the propane tanks that they're dragging in to fuel their saunas. So that I can appreciate the novelty and the creative direction. And I think the other action is just like the federal government was probably reasonably frustrated at the ineptitude of the lower levels of government and they're bringing their ability in. And to do that, they needed to go down this route. I'm really curious to see where the lawsuits go that the CCLA is planning to launch. And undoubtedly, when these protesters go to court, they will argue on charter grounds that this was an unjustifiable invocation. And it's one of those situations where you can't pick your defendants around some of these cases when you're testing human rights stuff and constitutionality, but it will be a widely watched judicial hearing. Like I'm not 100% against it, but I'm also deeply skeptical because of just the precedent setting nature of it and everything the civil liberties groups lay out. I'm curious to see how the debate goes. I'm One thing that was really interesting is Sven Robinson tweeted out his frustration that the federal NDP seems to be rolling over on this and just fully supporting the liberals in adopting it, whereas the only party seemingly critical or most critical is the conservatives. The bloc are critical as well because they just don't want the federal government ever doing anything. And the conservatives have too many of their own members who support the convoy directly or indirectly. None have been shown to be financially contributing, to be clear. But the NDP in the past has raised very strong and I think important that like conscience of parliament opposition to things that are otherwise popular, but 
in historical, through the lens of history, might not have been the right call. Tom Robinson points this out in his tweets. He, Tommy Douglas criticized Trudeau for implementing the War Measures Act. And I think it was the NDP was one of the, or the CCF before, it was one of the few to vote against going to the First World War. So that that kind of principled opposition can be valuable in Parliament. And in this case, Parliament has the requirement to vote on the use of the Emergencies Act seven days after it's implemented and continuously debates it until they vote, I think. Debate might be a bit of a a generous term to apply they, they to what They do what Parliament does. Well, from what I've gathered from the Parliament watchers out there, because I've been you know, too busy with my work to actually spend all day watching what's going on in the House, is that the current, for lack of a better term, debate going on, this is more of a clown show than usual. Yeah, I saw a clip Which where is- Jagmeet Singh was asking why the conservatives are behind, or so many of the conservatives support the convoy, and they said too many NDP MPs support pro-communist marches, which I don't even know what is referencing. I'm not sure what specific one there is. I'm sure you could find a picture of an, of an NDP MP with a communist flag behind them at some protest, but yeah, it wasn't exactly clear what the reference to that was. And then the main thing that came out yesterday, at least in the, the news, was whether Trudeau used the right was right to accuse the Conservatives of standing with people waiting swastikas around in response to a question asked by Alyssa Lantzman, who is uh, a Jewish woman, and that and the descent of Holocaust survivors. So that whole th- thing blew up yesterday, and it was not a great moment for any of this. And that I think is what's concerning me on this in particular is that invoking the Emergencies Act is a a very serious thing and it should be debated seriously and right now that does not seem to be the Liberals main focus and they seem much more willing to go for the quick political point scoring rather than be the serious adults in the room that they should be when it comes to using some pretty significant and literally unprecedented government powers on this. Yes, and also the conservatives need to be a lot more clear in separating themselves. Yeah, Everyone needs to be better. The prime minister has an extra level of responsibility by virtue of his office fully that he is not living up to at the moment or yeah or the attorney general as well who had a segment on with evan sullivan where he was asked about whether or not people who just donated to the convoy but weren't actively involved in organizing or anything had anything to worry about and he responded with something along the lines of anyone involved in kind of these pro-Trump things has reason to be worried, which is not great. Like The idea here is that it's to disrupt the funding of the convoy and not because of the political orientation, no matter how much we both may disagree with that political orientation. It's 
the point is not to go after people's politics. It's to go after the specific funding of unlawful ads. And that kind of looseness in language and intent is worrying. Yeah. I don't know where we go from here. I guess hopefully best case scenario, these tools allow everything to be cleared out fairly quick. The temperature can get churned back down and cooler heads can start prevailing once again. I, I hope the temperature tur gets turned back. Right now, it seems like there's nobody with any either incentive or just inherent sense of responsibility willing to actually turn down the temperature, which is concerning. I think if we see the protests cleared and most of that dispersed, we can have at least a breath before whatever comes next, because... Oh, I've given up hope that things will ever be quote-unquote normal again. Anything more you want to say here? Yeah. One uh, interesting bit of the Emergencies Act is that when it gets triggered, a inquiry has to be struck within, I, I forget the exact number of days, but some number of days, I think it's 30 or 60, after the emergency has concluded. So as a result, we are going to get an inquiry into all of this because it's required by the legislation, which <clears throat> will certainly make for interesting reading. And I expect there will be a lot of scrutiny from that inquiry in terms of the details of both the specifics of the Emergencies Act as it was used, as well as the situation that led up to it. Because there are some very serious questions that should be asked about why things were allowed to get to this point. Because this should not have been a, a major issue. It's not that many people. Proper traffic control from day one would have prevented them from entrenching themselves in the downtown core. And hey, if there's absolutely right to protest. And if they just parked their vehicle somewhere in a proper parking spot and went out to the lawn of parliament and did their whole thing and waved their signs around, this would not have been an issue at all. And we would not have been talking about it for several weeks, but because that didn't happen, we are here. And there are some pretty serious questions that should be asked both about how the police responded and the broader police accountability and police chain of command on how that was allowed to go there and whether or not there needs to be some changes there, which I think pretty clearly there does. So that's best case scenario. Uh, worst case is that the strict text of the law only requires that cabinet convene an inquiry 60 days after the end of the declaration of emergency, quote, into the circumstances that led to the declaration being issued and the measures taken for dealing with the emergency. And then that report has to be tabled to Parliament within 360 days. So they have 300 days to do the inquiry. And it's basically just cabinet that gets to decide how the inquiry is done. So it could be a total pro forma waste of time. It could be something super partisan that's focused on mocking their enemies. I really hope it's not. That would be a huge waste. I <laughs> Doesn't the uh, federal government have an inquiries at similar to all the provinces? Yeah, They're but that's probably not 
what's required here. The inquiry is only required within the Emergencies Act, and it doesn't say you have to do it under the Public Inquiry Act. It's just do an inquiry as you will. So at least we have a minority parliament, and I would hope that the NDP and the Greens and the Conservatives and the Bloc all support a thorough investigation here. Yeah, and we should, yeah. And hopefully there comes out of this some other legislative tool that exists between just not saying anything for three weeks and hoping the the provinces handle this and the nuclear option. Because a big part of the problem here is there isn't that kind of intermediary step for the federal government to use. And I think we'd all be pretty critical of... uh, Dud Ford being slow to this, though he at least beat the feds by a week on the declaration of emergencies. But it does seem like there should be some options that are not quite as drastic. One would hope. Speaking of plans and things being laid out for the future, we have a new economic plan For BC, the Stronger BC plan was released by the NDP today, and they really touted it as something, and everyone who read it went, okay, that's nice, but what? So what? (laughs) The plan is a 40-page document focused on inclusive growth and clean growth. It highlights six missions, which I'll touch on briefly in a second, and I think is best viewed as like an overarching strategy document that can inform the next several budgets to come. Like budgets tell us very concretely what is going to happen with the money the government takes in and where it will spend it and what their priorities are, but this will give us the longer term priority. So maybe it's okay. It doesn't have a lot of specifics, but it also makes it a very vague. If you've ever read a strategic plan for an organization, they can feel really highfalutin and fluffy. Yes. There's really no new ground being broken here. And there's a new funding commitment to BCIT for some expanded stuff out there. But this is a government that's been around five years. You're not really getting anything you didn't already expect. There's nothing really in there that they haven't talked about before. Okay, they have a mass timber strategy. That's good. Mass timber's cool, and it's a exciting piece of building technology that I would love to see more of, but the government's been talking about mass timber for five years. It, there's not much new to say about that, and that's more or less what you get as you go through this. Yeah, the Missions within inclusive growth are supporting people and families, so that's things like affordability, childcare, education, NDP bread and butter, building resilient communities, which is affordable housing, doubling down on high-speed internet, so making sure that is available in every community in the province, and reconciliation. And then on the clean growth side, they want to make sure we meet our climate commitments, lead on environmental and social responsibility, and foster innovation across the economy. And in that last one is where you get a focus on attracting high-tech sector talent, expanding manufacturing, and value-add to natural resources, the perennial dream of governments in this province. 
The one thing that is new is right at the end, they talk about the metrics for this and how they will track the success of it. And they've adopted wholeheart or they've adopted the BC Green talking point for years to have a broader definition of what economic success is. So it will no longer be just job creation and GDP growth numbers, but they're also going to track poverty reduction, affordable housing inventory, and post-secondary training explicitly. And apparently, I guess we'll get a website with a dashboard that we can actually just click on every day or month and see how BC's doing across this range of societal health. Because the focus on this is an economy is about people. And if you forget about the people, GDP doesn't really matter. Like you can grow GDP, but have your population do worse if inequality grows. So that's nice. But like that metric, that dashboard could have been done without this. I guess this just gives us a clear indication of that the NDP government that we've known is going to try to continue doing what it's been doing. And so the responses that I saw to this are pretty much along that. Kirk Lapointe in Business in Vancouver, no friend to the NDP really, describes it as long on goals and short on specifics, like we observed. He's not as like harsh on it as I would have expected, but I guess maybe just it's a lot of good sounding buzzwords, so it's hard to criticize it for that. Kevin Falcon criticized it for be- have lacking metrics, and in a longer quote, I he gave to the press, he said, this was apparently informed by a left-wing academic they hired out of Britain who advised the socialist leader Jeremy Corbyn. And here I think he's referring to Mariana Mazzucato, who's a London-based economist at University College. Maybe that'll help the left shore up the left-wing of the NDP, but I don't see anything that's like hard left in this. Like it's a progressive party. I could see the federal liberals having something very similar to this. Yeah, that's pretty much the story of the BCNDP. They've more or less governed pretty much like a liberal party would, the smaller liberal or, I guess, federal liberal party, which I, I generally think is to their credit, and it's probably part of the reason why Horden's numbers that we mentioned earlier are pretty good. I would say they've governed like the federal liberals' campaign. How they govern tends to vary depending on the mandate. Sometimes it they don't live up to their promises, is what I'm saying. Uh, University of Victoria economist Rob Gillizo tweeted out that the most interesting dynamic in BC's economic plan is the tension between the worker shortage narrative and its goal of hiking household after-tax income. The focus has been on boosting labor supply, but market-based wage increases are more consistent with the plan's goals. So there's talk in the plan itself about immigration and growing the province and growing the economy. But he highlights this idea that aggressive wage growth could make BC a lot more affordable if we can't get housing costs down, because we're probably not realistically ever going to have a government that is in support of slashing metro van house prices by half or more, which even that would not bring them to affordable levels. We're at that level of disconnect. Maybe we could at least pay people more <laughs> and get get our returns that way. Sonia Firstenau actually did applaud the education investments and the use of the broader scope of indicators, but described the entire plan as a great lesson in reduce, reuse, and recycle, arguing it's a branding announcement. There's a lot of re-announcements in there. 
Um, so pretty critical. But I think my favorite was that John Horgan tweeted out an endorsement from Andrew Weaver, who said, if I were to write my dream plan, I literally would have written this plan. <laughs> Does anyone care what Andrew Weaver has to say anymore? Like, no offense to Dr. Weaver, but I feel like at this point, the NDP is just rubbing it in BC Green's faces that he's not a Green anymore. And I think BC Greens are happy that he's not. So, Not everyone pays as much attention to politics as we do, so endorsed by the former Green Party leaders, the sort of thing that I think most people would look at favorably. I think the federal liberals so, did that with their climate plan. So I guess next week when the provincial budget comes out, we'll see the finer details start to emerge of where this goes. Like you mentioned, the one big announcement with this was $136 million, which is not pennies. That's serious money to complete the new trades and technology complex at BCIT and Burnaby. And that'll form a big core of getting the million jobs they want to see created to go into agriculture, clean tech, and additional industries. So wait and see for the budget. Indeed. Uh, a couple of things that I no noticed kind of weren't in the piece very much is there isn't really a specific productivity plan, which is something I was hoping to see here. It, productivity gets, I think, pops up eight times if you control F the, the document. So it gets mentioned throughout as, okay, this helps with productivity a bit here and there, but Canada-wide, the productivity growth has been anemic for years now, and that is ultimately what we need to increase. We do want to see that those wage growth that we want and everything else, and no government's done a particularly good job of addressing it, and most of them don't even talk about it very much, but it's disappointing that that isn't really a key feature here, nor is the <clears throat> demographic risk from an aging population and what that does to economic dynamism, competitiveness, and just the ratio of dependence to workers in the economy and immigration gets three mentions in the document and that's good immigration definitely needs to be a part of this but it, it does need to be something that is i think more clearly in focus as a thing to be working on for the government here that has some very significant economic impacts and all that together just yeah it feels a little empty and repetitive i guess for the overall document the plan doesn't really mention natural gas or lng it does mention natural gas once it actually puts it in the section on uh, greening our economy on leading on environmental and social responsibility and it says our clean energy advantage is creating new opportunities in our electricity and natural gas sector that fit within clean bc and the ndp's already staked out this turf that they can build out some lng projects while being within the confines they've defined of clean bc that irk for the environmental wing of the party will still be there that they have not abandoned an oil and gas sector yet. Maybe next time. So, interesting document. There is a survey attached to it, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes and encourage you to check that out if you have opinions or maybe you think there should be more 
talk about productivity in there. Well, moving on to our third segment, Everyone Cut Footloose, Dancing is Legal Again in BC. This comes as the province has adjusted its COVID-19 restrictions, and among the changes is the prohibition on dancing has been lifted, as well as indoor personal gatherings can return to normal, i.e. there is no cap on attendees, indoor and outdoor organized gatherings can operate at full capacity, as long as masks and vaccine card requirements are observed. Indoor seated events also can resume to full capacity with those same mask and vaccine provisions. And fitness centers are going back to full capacity. So the most interesting thing here is what's not changing is that the mask mandates are remaining in place and you are still required to show your BC vaccine card for the foreseeable future. These additional measures as well as a few others around school and childcare guidelines, restrictions on overnight youth camps, uh, industrial camp orders, long-term care visitor restrictions, and COVID safety plans will be reviewed on March 15th and April 12th, on or before. And so there we have timelines for when the next updates may come. But in the past week, we've seen changes announced or happen in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario at least, where they've abandoned in at least in Alberta, like just fully abandon everything immediately. And others are planning to roll or phase out their vaccine passports or their mask requirements very quickly in the coming weeks. And it's interesting to see BC take a different tact on that. I'm personally reassured. I think it's value. There's still value to the vaccine card, although I think it would have more value if we did put a third dose requirement on there or had a timeline for that. So there would be a push to get that third dose. And then the knowledge when you are at places that people who have three doses who are far less likely to transmit Omicron, uh, those are the only people you're interacting with. Yeah, Um, I think we're still a couple weeks away from where everyone should be coming up on their third dose eligibility. So I, I could see that being changed in the coming weeks. But yeah, like it doesn't really strike me as fair that if someone who's 20 who is back to the line for the the first two doses hasn't had their booster invite yet that they would get denied access to a place. Yeah, you'd need a timeline to roll that yeah, out. But give it some time. It's good. It's mostly there, I think, more than anything else is the carrot and stick towards opping that vaccine uptake. And that's good, but... It really does seem like we've hit the point of diminishing returns on that. By all means, keep it. I'm not, but I'm I'm not convinced it's gonna it nudge things very far in any one direction beyond that. The other thing that gets me here is I feel like everyone had forgotten we pretty much had some of these restrictions, like the indoor personal gathering restrictions. I would you know, wager I- that a lot of people were not checking their. The, the capacity limits. Like, do you remember what a couple it was? Ago. It was six people, I want to say. I think it was 10, but neither of us have looked it up. So I think what we'd gotten into was a situation where people who were observing the guidelines were just having no one over, pretty much. Or maybe you had one friend visit. Or you had people who just didn't care. But we 
like the government seemed to have just given up on talking about that and it was instead more about just the vaccines and the masks which it's all important but we know this virus transmits in social gatherings and we've just maintained these restrictions so it's good i guess that they're dropping restrictions that they're not talking about and not promoting and enforcing or maybe they were enforcing but it seemed to have just been forgotten about and in all the other settings i don't know the specifics in terms of what outbreaks are happening but there has to be a timeline to phase these out and it seems reasonable when you look at the hospitalizations in the last couple of days that have just cratered thankfully it seems like we're past the omicron wave where a week ago it was harder to tell like we may have just been sitting at the peak thankfully omicron passes very quickly i'm also yeah and i'm yeah steep glad wave, we're not but, just uh, hard opening yeah I, I think it was becoming increasingly untenable to maintain all the restrictions nevertheless all, r dropping them entirely at the peak of a wave is imprudent to say the least so cough I think alberta well, I think they're probably past their peak as well. Who knows? No one's measuring case data anymore because we got overwhelmed. Well, the, the entire testing system basically crashed. Uh, wastewater samples, I think, are probably the best metric these days for case counts, roughly. That and, and or ICU admissions and deaths. But Yeah, th those tend to be lagging indicators, yeah. though. Whereas I think uh, wastewater COVID-19 concentrations are fairly immediate. The... Other thing I was interested in the announcement is they launched it by talking about how 55% of 5 to 11-year-olds now have at least one dose. And I had to look it up. They started being eligible for their first dose at the end of November. And I found it actually rather discouraging that we've only hit 55% in that cohort. And when you look dig into the data a little on BC's dashboards it's very uneven with places in metro van in the high 70s or 80 percent of kids with their first dose and other regions with none relative uh, uh, yeah, effectively no kids and that points to big problems like i see in the data that kids thankfully aren't getting as sick with covid but they're still massive vectors especially while schools are open and it seems like we can keep schools open but if they're the vector for that community spread i think we need to actively be trying to vaccinate the children <laughs> and why bc and many other provinces have not and don't seem interested in bringing the vaccines into schools still it boggles my mind like we have done it for other vaccines and we do it regularly for other vaccines it's such an easy step at this point we can do the covid vaccine in a pharmacy we could do it in a school they do it in workplaces they could do it in the schools yeah, it, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, I got my flu shot this year through my work, and we just had a nurse come in and give everyone in the company flu shots. And th there's no reason you couldn't do that exact same model, but in a school with the COVID vaccine. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's a little weird that they aren't doing this. It's actually, it's hard enough for low-wage adults to get the vaccine themselves like you are entitled to pay time off but there are a lot of precarious forms of work where exercising those rights aren't easy or if say you are a shift worker or someone who's technically self-employed like an uber driver you don't work you don't get paid and so finding that time can be tough it's doubly tough we then you then also have to take time off 
to take your kids to get the vaccine and they have to miss school to get it, or you have to get a limited evening or weekend slot. And so there's just a strong equity case for making it more accessible. But here we are. I, I guess the, the kids are fine, but yeah. There's also a very high number of kids who've had COVID on their estimated charts, which was also worrying when you hear some of the stories about long COVID and the potential long effect of this. that's true, though, pretty much every age group, I would imagine, after Omicron burned through a lot of the population in a couple months during the peak, plus all the infections from the previous variants, it, it would not surprise me if we just have a lot of people who've had COVID. Just ongoing concerns. But here we are. One day, the pandemic will be over. One day. Let's close off with two BC Poly quick takes. First off, Andrew Wilkinson has officially resigned. If you're thinking, didn't you already tell us this story? You would be correct. Yeah, we uh, talked about this last week. And I, I joked that, oh, maybe he hasn't actually resigned, just like he took a long time to resign as BC Liberal leader. Turns out that wasn't a joke. That That is actually what happened. He only formally stepped down, I believe. Today was his last day in the legislature. He did have... He was asked about this by media, like, why are you still in the legislature? You said you were resigning. And I guess his interns or his staff were forced to answer that, oh, it's actually complicated to resign as an MLA. And he has a bunch of technology still that he would have to return. And he just can't, he just can't do it that fast, which was a creative answer. Doesn't strike me as a particularly plausible one, because don't you usually have to file your resignation before you do all the things that you have to do on your way out yeah wilkinson like, would the be first weird mla to, to resign people it have would resigned be weird, before it, it would be weird to walk into the legislative te- it department and just hand them your government cell phone two days before you fought you resign and they're just like what do i do with this it, it, yeah didn't make a huge amount of sense but i guess <sighs> That's what happens when you have to think on your feet. Yeah. So I don't like want to dance on his political grave in any way. I think he was a talented or at least an intelligent man. He wasn't necessarily a talented politician, but he did bring something to the legislature when he was there. And many of his speeches in opposition, while not leader of the opposition, were actually quite strong, especially his criticisms, for example, of the FOI bill, which we can talk about in a second. So... I'm curious to see where Dr. Wilkinson goes from here, the doctor lawyer, but he has said that his political career isn't over, so maybe he runs federally. There is that vacancy of the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Uh, that he, doesn't strike he, as me far, as his place. He's a lib- as, as far as I know, he's a federal liberal. So, I don't know, maybe, maybe Justin Trudeau's time is going to be up and he'll be going for that job. The, we didn't talk about this during the Emergencies Act section but people have been generally pretty supportive of using the emergencies at trudeau's own polling on this has not been great and i think the handling of this may end up hurting him in the long run and 
he didn't exactly seem on top of his game in the last few months before all this. So, I don't know. It seems more likely than not compared to a couple uh, months ago that uh, Trudeau may be going for that walk in the snow sooner rather than later. And finally, we mentioned last week that Adam Olson had raised an interesting point of privilege around comments that Minister Lisa Baer had made around the FOI fee that would be introduced following the passage of the updates to the Freedom of Information Protection and Privacy Act. Earlier this week, the speaker concluded his investigation, having considered submissions from a number of members. He did not consider submissions from the media, ruling them, I believe, not within his purview as Speaker of the House conducts its own business. It doesn't take random people's opinions, no offense to our journalist friends. Ultimately, the Speaker couldn't conclusively conclude, to use his words, that Bear deliberately misled the House. There was no prima facie case of lying, breach of privilege. I'm not surprised by this result. It's a pretty high bar to say a member of the House lied. And there isn't a smoking gun here. Like, if N- nevertheless, yeah, there's not a smoking gun, but there sure seems to be a lot of smoke. So, yeah, we're, we're not getting this resolved through the point of uh, privilege raised by Adam Olson. Nevertheless, I, I expect this will continue to be something that gets looked into and I gather various journalists are trying to get copies of the unredacted briefing note because the note that had been released the NDB had redacted the date on that for some reason that I can that the only one I can think of is to try and obscure when the minister actually made the decision on that yeah not not yeah, getting that the was form- a wild one. Yeah, not not getting the formal censure on this is one thing, but like they the NDP does not look good coming out of this, even without that. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at Patreon.com/slash/playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. <laughs>